Hey everyone, welcome back to the Last Word on Sentence podcast. As always, it's your host Alex Metzger here. Uh, today, got a great uh, chat with Spencer Blake of Silver Seven Sends. Uh, he's been on the podcast a couple times before, and it's really awesome to have him back on again. Uh, I think everyone will really enjoy it. Um, just wanted to come at you quickly and thank everyone for the support lately with the podcast. Uh, it's been awesome just uh, being able to put the content out and seeing people uh, like it and interact and everything. So uh, it's been absolutely amazing. And I just want to say a quick thank you. Um, I keep planning on hopefully doing every week or two. I know I think it's been about two since I did the first one. Uh, it's mostly just planning. But um, yeah, as always, that's the plan. So um, if there's anyone you want to hear as a guest, please let me know. I'm always open to ideas to try and get people. And um as mentioned, just thank you everyone so much for listening. I uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NHL Sends and stuff. Find my other podcast, the MNM Hockey Podcast with Chase McCallum, where we break down the NHL league wide. Uh, anywhere you listen to this podcast, and then you can find all my stuff at LastWordOnHockey.com. Um, so I hope everyone enjoys. And without further ado, I'm going to flip it to the uh, chat with Spencer. Making his return to the podcast, it is the one and only Spencer Blake. Uh, he is a Belleville Senators. He covers the Belleville Senators for Silver Seven Cents. Uh, Spencer, it's been a little while since I've had you on the podcast. How's it going, man? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you. As we were just saying before we started recording here, there's uh, obviously a lot to talk about with this uh, with this team, and you know, there's there's no shortage of stuff. Uh, given that, I, especially because I haven't recorded in a couple of weeks, but um, I don't even know where to start. I, I guess you know, as we're recording, it would be a good time to let people know when we're doing this. It is uh, Friday afternoon, and the Senators are about to go to Florida to play two games on the road. Uh, against the Panthers and the Lightning. So definitely a tough test coming up that we'll get to, but they are four and three right now. Uh, it's been an exciting start to the season, to say the least. They have 27 goals for, 22 against. Uh, they had a four-game home, or a five-game homestand that they won four games in a row in. Uh, let's go back a little further than that. You know, they, they start 0-3 to start the year. Things were really looking or sorry, they start 0-2 to start the year, I should say. Things were, um, I'm not going to say they were looking bad. I thought they played two good games against the Buffalo Sabres and the Maple Leafs, um, but they came out with zero points in games where, in both of those, really, they let it get away late. That Maple Leafs game, they got scored on with six minutes left. Obviously, Buffalo was a little more time than that, but it was really just two goals in, in the span of a couple minutes that sunk them. You know, how are you, if you can take me back to, you know, before they started this homestand, were you anxious at all? And do you think the fan base was anxious at all? Uh, I yes, based on Twitter, the fan base was definitely anxious. Um, I think I, I was as, as well, but not necessarily, you know, dire. Let's let's throw in the towel so early type of feeling. But uh, to your point, it really felt like the especially the game against the Sabers was winnable. I mean, I think the game against both Sabers and and Leafs were winnable, but um, it really felt like you know, oh geez, now they're playing well, but they still can't win like that. That was kind of where my, where my head was at, but they also played well, which is different than, than seasons past where they've played terribly to start the season and also didn't win. So it was definitely a, a bit of an anxious time. I think just coming into that first home game, especially given that first home game was against the Bruins who have continued to defy age uh, and logic and continue to be, unbelievably good uh so you know going into that you know home ice it definitely felt like that game against the Bruins was like if they don't win this one then I'm going to start worrying 
Yeah, I mean, to compare it to another Canadian team, it's kind of like the Vancouver Canucks that finally got off their slide last Seriously. night. They started 0-5-2, and the, they're just going mental out there, and rightfully so. I mean, we've seen over the past two or three years, it's not like Ottawa had expectations over the past couple of years, but we've seen just like how quickly you can be out after a bad start when, you know, like there was a graphic last night as they were going for five, their fifth straight win against Minnesota Wild, where it was like games to get to five wins, and it's been 13, 15, and 15, I want to say it was over the past two years. And you know, they have a chance, they had a chance to do it in game seven tonight. So uh, or last night, sorry, and it will be game eight. They'll have a chance to do it uh again, which is it just obviously tells you how much better this season's been going. But yeah, I definitely think there was some nervous energy, especially you know, in hindsight, too. Like, yeah, you mentioned the Bruins, they're the only loss is still to the senators, they're seven yeah. one and oh. And they just got Brad Marjoram back last night. So it's not like he's been playing. Charlie McAvoy's been out. This Bruin team's been on a roll. And yeah, Ottawa took that momentum. And and obviously the Bruins were on a back-to-back. So that, that helped a little bit. But, yeah. you know, they, they took the home ice and really ran with it. And it was a, looked like just a rambunctious building on there on Tuesday night. You know, probably the fullest non-Leafs or Habs crowd the fullest I've seen with Sens fans in there in a very long time. And oh, yeah. that is an insult. It's awesome to see. Um, I got the person I got to go down on Thursday and Saturday. I watched them live both those days and it was absolutely awesome to be back in the Canadian tire center. Um, but yeah, they, the, that Boston game, I mean, that was a crazy game. And then there's been a lot of crazy games this year. Like, it feels like Ottawa, there'll be no short of action with this team, but that Boston game, they get up so early. It's, it's three, nothing early. And then Boston just comes crawling back. And, and I think you know, at least in my head, part of me went, all right, here we go. Like <laughs> still a young team, like the vets in, in Boston, how are they going to rebound? But they just, you know, even when they gave up two or three and let Boston back into the game, they went, nope, we're going to, we're going to control this. And, you know, it, it was a little scary at times, but into that third period, I didn't really have a doubt that they were losing the game. Yeah. Oh, me neither. It was, uh, it was three, one, and I, I have a, a newborn, six week old, and uh, she was getting hungry. So I had to bring her up to her mother. Uh, and I was probably upstairs for four minutes. And I came back downstairs and it was three, three. <laughs> I was like, okay, here we go again. You know, they they started off hot. You know, fans were were loud. You could hear. So, I mean, you, you said you were at the games against, I think it was Arizona and uh, Washington. Um, so you would have had the same experience as, as I was, but you could hear the crowd on the television broadcast of that home opener. Like it was, it was loud. I don't know if that was, I mean, I'm sure it, it reflected the the atmosphere in the building, but um, I don't know if TSN might have just cranked up the volume a little bit to, to let the fans at home feel it, but uh, it, w- it was pretty awesome. But yeah, that, that, that three, one to three, three in the span of, I don't know what it was two minutes. Of, of two minutes of, of playing time uh that was yeah disheartening to say the least because i thought okay here we go this is the sense team that we thought we were going to watch over the summer as they put, put the pieces together and then it all evaporated very quickly um luckily they still won but you don't really want to give up five goals ever so um, that's the other thing that's been awesome so far is you know other than a couple games you know they've been scoring almost at will in in some games right you know even last night uh in the, in the game against the wild you know, they were down 3-1, and I didn't feel the same thing that I used to feel last season and the season before and the season before when the team was down 3-1. I was like, you know what? They're one 
you know, one Pinto shot away. They're one Giroux shot away whereas, from being back in the game. Whereas last year I would have been like 3-1. Hmm. Maybe I'll put this on my laptop and watch something else on TV because I don't really want to watch them lose again. So uh, definitely a, a great feeling in the last you know couple of weeks relative to years past. Yeah, exactly. I think most people who listen to this podcast probably have watched most of the games and know kind of what's happened so far. So I don't want to just fully recap everything, but I, I think that's a great point in that. And that Boston game alone, I think is a, you can take a high level of what we could probably expect from the Sens at times this year. And that's an offense that will be able to score at will. You know, we know they're a high powered offense. Uh, they're, they're an offensive checking team, you know, that they, they have all kinds of skill, but they, they also play hard in the corners as well. They go get those pucks, but they're going to have their flaws on defense as well. And I think, you know, compared to last year's too, their offense is so much better that they can outscore their problems at times too. Whereas, you know, last year it was the same kind of thing. There was a lot of games where it was five, four, but Ottawa was coming out on the fore end of that because, you know, they just, they couldn't get the extra goal or two that they need. I think that changes a little more this year. It's not going to all the time, of course, but the other good, the other thing I think you absolutely was correct about too, is with the wild, you know, they were never out. To me, that Capitals game, watching it live, that first period was one of the worst periods I've seen (laughs) any team play. They were just flat on Thursday. And, you know, to the point where I was like, oh, man, like, what did I come to watch? And then the next two periods, they just, they flip a switch like it's absolutely nothing and just dominate the Capitals to the point where I think the shots ended up like 42-30 in favor of Ottawa. And, like, it just wasn't in doubt. Like, it was just a, a night and day team. And as you said, like, that just makes me feel so much better about this team is, Yes, I get it. There's you, you can't dominate every period. No team does, you know, like the, the Colorado Avalanche don't do that. But it's so nice knowing that even when they come out to a bit of a flat start or, you know, like last night against Minnesota, I thought they were really flat in the second period for a large stretch of that. Yeah. They don't just give up. They come out and, and, you know, if they're down a goal, if they're down two goals, this game is still one you want to watch because they are still very much in the game. You know, two goals is not something that they can't overcome. And that's just it's just such a nice feeling to be able to say that after five years of crap, to be honest, where it's like, <laughs> yeah. like since 2018, you've known if they're down two goals, it's probably like they're not. Yeah. They they don't want to come back. The fans don't, their management doesn't want them to come back from that. And the fans probably didn't either because it meant a higher pick, but that's yeah. not the case this year. And it's just, it's so nice to be engaged in all 60 minutes of a game. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They've taught us that they're not they're not out yet, which is which is wonderful to see. It's a huge change uh, from years past. My my one hope, I mean, obviously the big hope is to make the playoffs, but my one hope for this year is that I just I don't want to care about draft rankings in in March. Like I, I don't, I, I don't want to. I even if they don't make the playoffs, but you know maybe Ottawa's picking fourteenth. Like at that point, fine, I don't care. But like, I don't want to be looking at, you know, who's the top five, who's the top seven. That's, that's the, I think a realistic hope, but that is my, my one hope for this year is that we're not doing that again. Cause I'm, I'm tired of draft rankings. Yeah. I want to, I, my hope is that I want to be known who those mid round sleepers are this year, yes. because that means that they're above that, you know, top 10 threshold and, and they're playing meaningful hockey again, even if they don't make the playoffs and, and, you know, we, we'll, we can get to that too, but you know, it's the the Atlantic looks as good as we kind of thought. Uh, you know, the Maple Leafs have been off to a bit of a slow start. The Panthers and Lightning both have. They're all just kind of hovering around 500. But the Bruins have been amazing. The Sabres look really good. You know, the Senators have looked solid. The Red Wings look improved. And, and even the Canadians, who came in last last year, are 4-4. Four and four. And, you know, I think 
a lot of people were, I don't know if sleeping is the right word on the Canadians, but I think a lot of people kind of penciled them in to be like that 32nd team again this year. And I just don't think they're near as bad as Philly, who Philly's been off to a hot start as well. Chicago and, you know, the Sharks, even Anaheim out West. Like I think Montreal's closer to the 28 to 26 range than they are 32. So, you know, when that's the absolute worst team in your division this year, you're going to be in tough, but playoffs do look, I'm not going to say it's a lock or anything like that, but it's at least a possibility. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's just so nice being three weeks into the season and not being like, Oh yeah, we're already eight points out of a playoff. spot. <laughs> There's no chance we're coming back. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the, both the Atlantic and the East as a whole so far is it's gridlock, right? Like there, there's, you know, the, the worst team in the Atlantic division currently is technically the Montreal Canadiens and they are 500. That doesn't make any sense to me, <laughs> right? Mathematically, someone should be below 500, at least one team, but they're not because it would appear that everyone in the Atlantic, when they play non-Atlantic teams are winning, right? So I think that we've got an interesting thing. I, I, you know, maybe it's a trust issue thing. I don't buy that the Buffalo Sabres are as good as they've played so far. No. Um, I think they're I think they're getting the Craig Anderson effect, uh, where he's he's carrying them, especially in that game against Ottawa. Um, I agree with you though. I definitely thought, you know, in my head, Montreal, Arizona, Chicago were, you know, the three worst teams. Uh, and it wasn't close, right? In my head. I do think that maybe my uh anti-Montreal bias may have influenced that. I'm not saying that they're good necessarily but you know I'm, I'm with you i think they're probably more you know the next tier of bad they'll give you a hard game if you right. underestimate them like they're kind of yeah. like what the sends have been for a year or two now totally like it's not you know they, they just they're they're lacking you know they, you know suzuki's great caulfield's great um they're lacking you know i think the depth of skill right but like you know Anderson, or any semblance of a defenseman as well, well that's that their uh <laughs> well that too but like anderson monahan like they, they have good they have 12 NHL forwards, players. which is a lot more than a lot of teams can say in a tank. It's a heck of a lot more NHL forwards than like Arizona has. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, I guess a little bit by Montreal, but I also think that I just underestimated that their worst players aren't as bad as other teams, worst players. That makes sense. Like yeah, depth, for sure. Their depth is average enough that they can get by. They'll give you a hard, hard press game. I don't think that they're going to be 500 forever. I think we're going to start to see that separation uh, in in the Atlantic with Buffalo and Montreal probably dropping down. But the other thing is, to your point, like Toronto has started off slow for Toronto, but you can't ever rule that roster out, right? Like Austin Matthews is what two goals? Two goals. Yep. Right in that's eight games, gonna, that's which, gonna, that's which is uh, <laughs> not even close to his his usual clip. Uh, and as someone who has him in fantasy hockey, I hope that he improves that soon. Uh, but yeah, it's I think the Atlantic's gonna be fascinating to watch over the next month to see what it looks like relative to today. Because I I think the top is probably where it it will be with like Boston being up there, Toronto being up there. Florida's, I think, I don't know. They're, they just have so far to fall from last year is the problem. Yeah, yeah. But with Ekblad out, that could be mm-hmm. a, a thing. But anyways, yeah, I think it's 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 fascinating to see early on, you know, seven, eight games in, how right and or wrong I was in my head about certain teams. Yeah, and I mean, it's still such a small sample size. Like Buffalo, oh, yeah. Buffalo's the big one where it's like, 
everyone's like, oh, they look so different. It's like they do this every year. They get out to a hot start every <laughs> year. They're rocking a 104 PDO right now because they're getting like 950 goaltending and shooting in a team clip 14%, which like is I'll just unheard of. Like, you know, so it's just one of those things where it's like, yeah, like they're a better team, no doubt. They're not going to be a pushover like they have been in years past, no. but they're not a good team or anything. I think that'll balance out. So, um, yeah, I definitely think it'll be interesting to watch. American Thanksgiving is always that uh, kind of clip where, where people kind of say, you know, that's where you get a better look at what your team truly is. And that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So, you know, it'll be 15 games into the season or so, and, and you can 15 to 20, and you can kind of start to understand what your team might be looking at if you have some serious issues or not. And, and um, you know, teams will go from there, but um, yeah. The, the encouraging thing to me so far with Ottawa too, is unlike a team like Buffalo that I just mentioned where again, they're not bad, but they're 22nd in Corsi or an expected goals for percentage. And they are 23rd in Corsi four percentage. Like that's below like Montreal's 15 and 21 in those two categories or whatever. The Ottawa senators, on the other hand, it is not a case of just getting high end talent and, bailing them out or anything like that. They have legitimately outplayed their opponents. Uh, they are yeah. currently ninth in Corsi four percentage, and they are sixth in the entire league in expected goals percentage at 56%. Uh, the teams ahead of them are the New Jersey Devils, Carolina Hurricanes, Florida Panthers, Boston Bruins, and the Seattle Kraken. So, you know, a mix <laughs> of teams, but three teams that I think you would definitely say in Boston, Florida, and Carolina are near the top of the division. And uh, New Jersey's got a good team. They just can't buy a save to save their life, which I think kind of goes into those metrics a little bit. But my broader point is that, you know, I'm not saying Ottawa's the sixth best team in the league or anything, but this is such a vast improvement over any even 10-game stretch, I would say, over the past couple of years. I don't know. I haven't looked at this. I You know, it'd take me too much time. But I'm willing to bet there's probably – not more than one 10 game stretch over the past four seasons that the Ottawa Senators were a top 16 in expected goals at any time in, in that no. given stretch, right? Not so the fact that they've started that year, and I still think they have another level to go, you know, we'll get talking to it, but like to bring it, like I think he's looked good, but I still think to bring it, and even Drew, I think, has another level to give. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see who's centering them, maybe, but, you know, it's not like this team has just been lights out clicking on all cylinders but they're playing a very good fundamental style of hockey and yeah it's just there's nothing but encouragement that you can say about that and it's interesting i was thinking about this the other day because you know there's there's long been the eye test versus fancy stats battle right um where in my opinion you know, the logical thing is you kind of need both, but a lot of people just pin it against each other. Right. And there's been a long, in my experience, especially on Twitter, a longstanding history of sense fans disrespecting advanced stats because they don't never show the sentence, especially in the last five years in a positive light. And so then therefore they think, well, you know, I love the sentence. I think the sentence are good, but these stats don't. So therefore the stats are wrong. The interesting thing is that the Senators are off to one of their best starts that they've been, well, the best start they've had in the last four or five years. Um, but they're playing really good hockey, to your point, you know, sixth, fifth in, in some of these categories, right? They also look really good. It's almost as if the stats matter, right? And I, I'm wondering if people will learn that, but or maybe realize that. But to your point, on a game-by-game basis, I'm, I'm looking at natural stat trick here. There's only been one game this season where, and that was against the Leafs, where the Sens lost the Corsi battle. 
There's only been two games this season against the Leafs and against the Stars, although it was barely against the Stars, where they've lost the expected goals for a battle and only one game where they've lost the high day chances for a percentage battle, right? They're playing good hockey. It's not, it's not just, you know, like you said, it's not just, oh, they acquired, you know, some, some goal scorers and, you know, better players and whatever, and they're lucking their way in there. Overall, start to finish in hockey games. Yeah, they've had some bad periods, like yesterday, the second period against the Wild, and the first period against the Capitals uh, was abysmal. But overall, they're playing really, really good hockey start to finish, which is a huge change. And I think that Alex DeBrincat might have the quietest, excellent start to a, a, a season on a new team of like anyone in history because he's over a point per game and everyone's like, Oh, once to bring finds that next level, he's going to be awesome. And it's like, he's, he's over a point per game. He just hasn't scored. Right. So um, it's going to be awesome. I mean, I'm so glad to see that he scored last night. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to see obviously more goals from him, but he's, he's been good. He just, yeah. Oh yeah. He's, he's it just, it's crazy <laughs> that there is to think he's been that good and there's still another level. We can see him. To the point, like, I, I want to see him shoot more pucks like he did last night where, yeah. you know, I, I think to me in the first couple of games anyways, it looked like he was trying to go that pass first mentality and, you know, just trying to be, which is like awesome in terms of like, you could tell he's trying to be a good uh, new teammate and, you know, get some chemistry with Norris and Giroux when he was playing with them. But it's like, man, you got a wicked shot. I want to see him use it. And, you know, he used it last night, snapped a beauty home, should have had a second if it wasn't for Marc-Andre Fleury absolutely robbing him with a glove hand. Um, but yeah, like it, it's just, it's incredible how well they've started. And, you know, four and three almost feels like a disappointing record for how good they've played, you know, like against, yeah. Against Buffalo, I thought they played a really good game where it was 50-50, could have gone either way, and they didn't get the point. Uh, same with Toronto. Like, you know, they obviously, Toronto outplayed the, or in the expected goals in Corsi 4. It was, they outplayed them a little bit, but it wasn't, like, drastic, if I remember oh, no. correctly. No. And exactly, like, it was just kind of one of those games where it kind of came down to you hold on for a couple more minutes, you get an overtime point. You know, it, your record suddenly goes four, two, and one. Looks a lot better in four and three. As weird as that is, you know, like well, it's, and and Toronto's game-winning goal was, if I recall correctly, Justin Hall like stick poke checking the puck path. Like it wasn't, it wasn't it was a good a, goal. It was, no, it just happened, right? And like you can't be upset about it. Obviously, if if the Sens scored the exact same goal, we'd all be thrilled about it. But it wasn't like you know a dominant, you know. No, it, it wasn't a shift where like it was a, like they were pinned in their own end. Yeah. yeah, like it was just, it happened, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, but like other than that, and like even the Wild game last night, like, yeah, they, they got outplayed by the Wild at points in the game, but they yeah. also outplayed the Wild. And, you know, it was just, um, I couldn't believe how mad people were over the empty netter. I don't want to get into that too, too much, but oh. I, listen, I get it there on a power play, but every study done in the history of studies in the NHL has shown that teams should pull their goalie much earlier than even they do now. Yeah. There's studies that suggest if you're down two goals and you have a power play with 15 minutes left in the third period, there's positive value to pulling your goalie. Now yeah. I'm not saying teams need to do that. That seems <laughs> yeah. a little aggressive, but the idea that with three minutes, not even three minutes left, two minutes and 50 seconds left, you have full control off a face-off win with a power play. You wouldn't want an extra man out there for a six on four blows my mind. It just, it's, I, I, I saw it. that yesterday and, and this morning on Twitter. And I just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it partially because 
if the opposite happened, right? If DJ didn't pull the goalie and they stayed five on four and they didn't score, people would have been like, why didn't DJ pull the goalie, right? Like it would have been the exact same thing, right? And if you look back at the replay, I I can't remember who, who, Tossed the screenshots onto Twitter this morning uh, of of Batherson's pass, right? But Batherson, he's a skilled passer, right? So I get that he felt the confidence to make this play, but he made the second, if not third, safest pass, or or I guess more dangerous pass, whatever you want to call it, right? Whereas there was there was options on the wall, there was an option to ring it around the the back of the net, something safer uh, and more conservative, right? But he opted to try to feed it up to Shabbat and didn't work out, right? But at the end of the day, if if you're down two goals, or was it two goals or one goal? It was down one, one goal. goal. Down yeah. one goal with two and a whatever change left, and you're on the power play and you have the puck, why would you not want, you know, and you have, let's say, Chabot, to uh, Brink at Batherson, Kachuk, and Stutzel on the on the ice. I don't know if that was the actual five. Why would you also not want Giroux? Exactly. Like, <laughs> it just, like, why not? It doesn't, anyway. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. We don't need to get too deep into it, but it, the the fire DJ reaction, which I don't think there was fire DJ, but there was certainly, you know. There was people who were DJ saying lost that. that game reaction. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, I would. Yeah. Have, I I hope that DJ does that. Makes that decision every damn time. Yeah, me too. I, I think it was a good process, bad result, bad execution too. Like, yeah. and and like, how many times do you see even Shabbat? Like, I didn't think he had a good game last night either. No. And I I think a fair criticism of DJ is that Shabbat shouldn't be playing twenty seven minutes in a game in October against the Minnesota Wild, especially with how good Sanderson and even Branchcom have looked. So you know, like that's a fair criticism. I think if you want to point something out to like, hey DJ, what are you doing here? Like. Shabbat had a rough game last night and just in general probably shouldn't be playing that much in a random Thursday night in a game yeah. against a non-conference opponent. But yeah, like the, the idea that you wouldn't want the extra attacker there, I don't know. And then again, I'm not DJ's biggest fan. I think he does some good. He clearly motivates players in terms of, you know, I think he's been a great guy for a struggling re- or a rebuild that has been, you know, a tough couple years, I'm sure for players. I'm not yeah. sure if he's the guy to get them over the hump, but I'm also not like that is not the reason that you fire your coach or anything no. close to that. So um, yeah, I, I just, I thought that was, I couldn't believe it to be honest when I saw the reactions to that last night, but um, let's get into a couple big things or not big things, but uh, specific things we've seen with the Sens. And, and the one thing I want to pick your brain on here is obviously we've got a couple of injuries, unfortunately. Um, you know, first of all, I think the, the goaltending I want to point out has been really good for early for the Sens. Uh, Forsberg has looked, solid in the net. I don't think he's stolen too many games or anything, but he's made a couple really big saves here and there when he's needed to. And and that's, you know, and he's played above average and that's, if the Sens get that all year, they're absolutely golden because that's all a team like this needs. And then even when Forsberg went down, I thought Helberg looked pretty good in the net for, you know, a one game sample against a pretty good team in the Dallas stars. Um, you know, so, and, and it sounds like Cam Talbot will be getting close to back here in a couple of weeks as well, which is encouraging. So um, just quickly on that note, you know, I think the goaltending has been everything you can ask for at this point with Ottawa. Like they haven't been, again, they, they haven't absolutely stolen the show, but that's a good thing that they don't have to do that. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am thrilled that I don't feel uncomfortable about the Ottawa senators and their goaltenders this year. Um, and you know, obviously Talbot going down, that was worrying. Helberg came in and he played great. I don't know if it was a, a flash in the pan or if maybe he actually is just that good. I mean, he's got a great 
track record outside of the NHL. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled with how well the goaltending has been so far. Like you really can't point to it and say in any game, you know, Oh, if Forsberg had just done this, or if Hellberg had just done that, like it was, they're reliable. And if I, if I can't remember that the goaltending was bad, that probably means the goaltending was even better than I thought it was, right? Like exactly. it's, it's one of those things, right? When when you look at a, a fourth line player, like if I don't remember the fourth line player playing, that's probably actually a good thing because that means that they didn't do something so outrageously stupid that cost the team a goal and I don't remember it, right? Yep. When Nikita Zaitsev is in the lineup and I don't remember him playing, those that's are Nikita good. Zaitsev's best games, yep. right? And so the same thing goes for goaltending. I don't remember a game where I was like worried or nervous or upset with the goaltending, which must mean, even without looking up the stats, that the goaltending is just fine. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, that was one thing I want to point out quick. But uh, obviously, some tough, tough news for the Senators. Josh Norris sounds like he might be out all season. Uh, yeah, he injured his shoulder. Um, you know, they said they're going to do some MRIs on it and everything. And then last third this past week, DJ came out and said, I don't know if he'll play at all. They're determining if he gets surgery on it or if he just tries to rehab, but either way, he's going to be out very long-term, you know, yeah. like it doesn't sound like we'll see him back till well into the new year, if at all, which just sucks. You know, we know how Shane Pinto, he had to deal with that shoulder injury all of last year and, and really couldn't play all, all, but you know, four games. And, and uh, you know, so that, that sucks because especially because I was loving the Senator's top nine and the look of it, you know, that, yeah. Second line of Norris, Batherson, Giroux was starting to come together really nice. That that first line of Batherson, Stutzla, and Kachuk is just electric to watch on the four check. Like they just they're buzzing everywhere, you know. Like all three yeah. of them are just so strong and so skilled with the puck, and you know they can just kind of do things magically. Like Kachuk is trying in between the leg passes and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, obviously Stutzla's a magician with the puck on his stick, and and Batherson's got one of the quickest, you know taking releases on that right wing and you know it's just a perfect mix and then you had that third line of pinto um um joseph and uh tyler mott and that's been a really really fun line to watch too where it's like it's a good checking line but they're all skilled enough that you have to be careful when they're on the ice or they'll make you pay and and so far you know norris is down brassard stepped up into that 2c role I'm kind of curious to see what they do here because I get wanting to keep that third line together, but I think I'd actually rather see in the long term Shane Pinto jump up to the number two C, which he looks ready to do. He has looked amazing this year. And I think Broussard could fit in that third line, obviously not as well as Pinto, but I think he would, him, Mott, and Joseph could bring a, a decent third line as well. Whereas I think it was clear to me watching at times last night, especially that second line just kind of needs a bit more of that scoring punch. Um, you know, obviously the Brinkett can score as well, but having a guy like Pinto who's already got, I think it's five goals, six goals already this year. Um, mm-hmm. Having someone like him that can be a secondary shooting threat for to Brinkett, I think will also open up more ice for to Brinkett. I'm curious to get your opinions on, you know, what you think of the forward line so far and how would you move around in this top nine here? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really good question. Uh, same feeling for that top line that you have with with Chuck Batherson and and Stutzla. Like they're they're just they're dominant at this point. You know, they even strength. It almost feels like a pseudo power play a lot of the time when like when they have the puck, right? Um, and, and so it's it's tough. I don't think I would ever not ever, but in the near future until something bad happens, uh, switch that line. I think that line's fantastic. But I, I'm with you. Like 
I'm, I'm kind of at the moment in the mindset of, you know, Broussard's fine as that center between Dabrinka and Giroud until he's not, right? He hasn't really played a game where I've been mad about it. Um, and and to be clear, on I, I was a vocal uh, anti-Broussard PTO person on Twitter because I thought that his game was washed. Uh, and I have already admit to being wrong about that. But here's my public verbal audio apology to Derek or Derek Broussard my bad uh he's doing fine the thing that I have is that Shane Pinto and Joseph and and Mott I'm not as in love with them as a trio as I think others might be not that I think they're bad or like I think they're a solid third line but I don't think that they're the unbreakable third line that maybe others might um mostly because they are the only line in the top three that hasn't dominated the you know the fancy stats right they, they've played well obviously pinto scored a bunch of goals so that's awesome um but i don't think that they're necessarily you know gold uh and i would love to see i think pinto and brassard switch i also wouldn't mind flipping around some other wingers right like you know maybe maybe you see debrinkat with batherson on the other side or maybe you see uh, you know, like Joseph Norris and, and Kachuk played really well on a small sample last year. So maybe you see Kachuk, Stutzla and Joseph on that top line and then throw Batherson with Pinto and Mott or something. I don't know. I'm I'm open to a bit of a blender, um, but also, you know, they have a winning record and they are four and one in the last five games. So if they don't change it, they don't change it. And that's fine. But I think I'm not I'm not married to to the top nine where they are. Uh, I think that they're a good enough team now that you can kind of shake things up and not be super worried about it. Um, I'm expecting Broussard to eventually not be that center between Giroud and Debrinkat, but every game that he's playing well enough, which I think he has, keep them together. Why not? Let's see what happens. Yeah, I, I think part of me definitely goes with the thing of it's, if it's not broken, don't fix, fix it. And, yeah. you know, that's definitely the first line there. But yeah, I think the one thing we said coming into the year was that this top nine is so loaded that you can do so many things with it. And, you know, obviously Norris is a massive loss, but I still think that's true in terms of, you just have to accept that it's probably Broussard as that three C, which is okay. Um, You know, like, I think this is kind of why you went and got a Broussard type players, you know, he can be a three C now. Is it ideal all year? I don't really think so. Um, That being said, like, it is what it is. You know, maybe we see a Ridley Gregg get a shot at a 3C later in the season as, you know, maybe we get closer to the new year or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think you're right. Whereas I, I do think the other thing is, because I feel that way about the fourth line where I, they're fine. I just, um, they they definitely look like they're working hard, but I don't know if this is the ideal fourth line for the team. I, I really do like Kostelik, and obviously he just got a new uh, contract that this week as well, which I think is fine. Like if it doesn't work out, you can, that's an easily movable or variable contract. It's obviously it was what 800 K or just over 800 K for two yeah. years. I think, um, you know, th- that's a very fine contract to sign. I have no issues with it. I like Parker Kelly too. Watson. I'm not really sure what he brings to the team all the time, but I'm also kind of wondering if part of my bias towards this is because 
If you go and look at offensive zone starts, uh, this fourth <laughs> line only starts in the defensive end. There's yeah. uh, Watson has started 10% of his shifts in the offensive zone. Uh, Kelly is 5% and, and Kostelik is 8%. And that's the same with the third line too. Pinto's 29%. Joseph is uh, 26 and Mott is 27. And then that top six, uh, and I'm throwing, there's seven players in it, but Broussard's in there as well. Stutzel 62, Batherson 61, Broussard 63, Kachuk 62, uh, Dabrinkit 57, Giroux 56, Norris 51. So it's very clear that Smith is using his bottom two lines in a, a defensive style role. And, and I'm wondering if that's part of the reason why I'm not so high on, especially that fourth line too, because I don't think like they're fine. They're not bad. Which is again, they're an improvement over what we've had at times in the past <laughs> couple of years. Yeah, I'm just kind of a little worried long term that I don't think any of them are like defensive stalwarts that you need to have them out in like 60 percent of their starts in the defensive zone. Um, and, and even that that third line, I'm not really sure you need it to. And I get why you do it because the top six is so skilled offensively. You want to let them ride offensively, but yeah. there's got to be a time where if this team's going to win. It's because the top six is good offensively, but they do that while also being very responsible defensively, shutting other people's top lines down. And and sure, it's great if you can get a third line out there that just absolutely traps other players' top lines and doesn't let them do anything. That's awesome. But there's not a lot of teams that have that, you know, a very, very small handful that do. And even the ones that do still let their top lines go at times as well. So I'm... uh I'm wondering if that maybe has something to do with why I'm not as high on, you know, a couple of those bottom roster guys. And, and just, I'm curious to see if that's just a, a trend, you know, something that'll continue and, and uh, where that goes. I definitely think as they get away from home ice, they've obviously been on five game homestand and they're going on the road for two here. You're not going to have control of matchups. So you're not going to have yeah. control of that as much anymore, but that fourth line, especially they got caught against the Kaprasov Zuccarello line a couple of times last night. And yeah, it was, it was scary to watch, you know, like <laughs> I, I get they're all NHL players, but it was like, yeah, this is a mismatch. I don't think you should be purposely putting on the ice. Yeah. I think that that last bit that you just said is, is where, where I certainly agree um, is I'm fine with the defensive zone starts. I'm fine with, you know, I'm fine with the fourth line. It's good enough, I think, um, but it's purposefully matching that fourth line against other teams tops top uh top lines is when things get worrisome right we saw it a little bit against toronto now toronto was an away game uh so smith didn't have the ability to do as much line matching um but we saw the matthews line dominate uh Castellic's line a couple times uh and then but then last night i would assume and i wasn't watching that closely that uh there was some purposeful matching with Costellic and the Capri's offline and, and it did not go well. Um, that being said, I think where I sit with it is if I look around, if I do my best to take off my Sens rose colored glasses and I look around the league at other fourth lines, I'm not sure there are that many fourth lines. And this isn't, this isn't speaking highly of Ottawa's fourth line as much as it's just speaking lowly about all fourth line players that there aren't that many fourth lines where I'm like, Ooh, that's a really good fourth line. Right. That just it tends to not be right. That it tends to be the Austin Watsons and the and, Parker Kate and the Parker Kelly. You know, it's, it's either the veteran tough guys who can play a little bit like Austin Watson, or it's your, you know, too good for the AHL, not good enough for a top nine NHL role, but can play defensively enough like a Parker Kelly um type of type of trio. And so, you know, I think if if Smith can 
stop matching them up against the top lines quite as much. We'll we'll like them a little more. Um, but I, yeah, I'm I'm not. That's another line I'm not sold on, right? Like if 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 you take Austin Watson out of the lineup and put someone else on the right side, I might even be happier. But um, I don't ever see that happening because Austin Watson seems like every NHL head coach's ideal fourth line player for whatever reason. Yeah, like it, and it just when you're watching them in live too, and same with on TV, it just looks like they're working hard. And you know, I think oh, yeah. that that really and like I'm not saying they're not working hard, but you know, it's a couple times where it's like they don't do anything effortlessly. That's for sure. And even just yeah. like getting shots to the net or whatever looks like it's a challenge for them, um, which is, which is fine. But yeah, it's like I'm not worried about the fourth line per se because I, I would even take a step forward. The times that you do hear people praise the team's fourth line usually means the top six is horrible. You know, like I, I just always think back to like people would just gush over those that Islanders fourth line all the time. It's like the only reason you're doing that is because there's almost nothing to talk about in the top nine in terms of skill. And like obviously the, some of those Islanders teams got, you know, they, they made back-to-back conference finals. So the, there was talent there. But, you know, it, it was even earlier than that that people were talking about it as well. But, yeah, like I, I'm not worried about it, but it's gotten to the point. Like last night they were all rocking sub-30 expected goals and Corsi 4 percentage. <laughs> and, again, I think a lot of that is because they got caught out or – put out against the Kaprasov line. And yeah. yeah, that's just not something they can do. I think if you go head to head against other fourth lines, I think they'll play even in that matchup. They might even win against, you know, not a handful, a decent amount in the NHL. Like, I, I think they will be around a 50%, you know, possession, maybe a little above that. If they played other teams, fourth lines, other teams, third lines, that's fine. Obviously the odd shift against the top six is okay. You know, it's just not ideal. And then, Use them on the penalty kill. I'm to- I'm totally fine with that. You know, especially a guy like Parker Kelly. I- I've really liked what he's brought in terms of, you know, he just he just hounds the puck. And I think that is the ideal kind of penalty kill you want to see. Uh, I- again, I'm still not sold on Austin Watson. Um, I- he seems like a great guy in the room, and that definitely has meaning. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not like... I don't think he needs to come out of the lineup, but I'm also, he doesn't need to play 82 games. You know, like I just, even like I watch him on the penalty kill and whatnot. It's like, he's one of the most not laid back, but he just, he likes to be the guy to come and block the shot and look like that fearless warrior. Whereas I would rather him blocking less shots, but it's because he's putting pressure on the defenseman or whoever to make them move the puck a little quicker and force a turnover. Because I think, you know, last year we saw that's when they had the most success with Matthew Joseph did that really well. Obviously Formanton, uh, who's not in the lineup, he did that really well and used to speed back the other way. Connor Brown was always amazing at that. And I think Parker Kelly has aspects of that too. Whereas with Watson, I see almost a little more laid back of like, I'm just going to go and take this shot right to the chest, which is fearless don't get me wrong but i just think there could be a slightly better alternative yeah i completely agree yeah when when you're you know most talked about contributions to the lineup are hits blocking shots and fights i i don't really have a whole, a whole ton of time for that right um, i would much rather a parker kelly who does can do those things if he needs to but doesn't always need to because he's got that extra, you know, hop in his step to make it to the puck or to put extra pressure on the forward or on the defender or whatever, whether it's even strength or on the penalty kill. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty indifferent about Austin Watson. Uh, if not wish that he was at the very least a rotational piece of the fourth line. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at too. Um, yeah. but you know, I, again, I don't think that'll happen. And honestly, I think it's probably more than likely with how many shots he blocks, he'll fracture a wrist or something and and probably Maybe. have to miss 10 to 15 games you know not that i'm wishing that on anyone but no. it just he, he plays such a physical style of game 
he's bound to get nicked and bruised here, you know, uh, up just throughout the season. So um, I want to focus to the defense. Uh, it unfortunately got announced today that Artem Zub will be out uh, a week or two. It doesn't sound too serious or anything. He got hurt post game yesterday. I didn't see how he got hurt or anything. I, I didn't read any of the details. Just that he's out for a week or two, which is unfortunate. Um, we're going to get to him and maybe how you replace some of his minutes in the meantime in a second. Uh, but I want to talk about the other two pairs because I think it's fair to say Shabbat and Zub have been just about everything you've expected them to be. They play a ton of minutes. They've looked pretty good doing it. You know, Zub's been a good partner for Shabbat, pretty steady. But I want to talk about the other two pairs. And uh, let's start with Hamannick and Jake Sanderson leading the team in Corsi 4% and expected goals. This, to me, is just massive praise for Jake Sanderson. I tweeted this last night, but it is really neat that he has came in. He was given some unrealistic expectations to start this year, from myself included, of people who being like, oh, well, yeah. yeah, let's just pencil him in to a top four role. He's done that and more. He's looking like a top pair defenseman right now with how good he's playing. He looks comfortable in every aspect on, you know, I don't, he doesn't look amazing on the power play, but he looks like, you know, you see why he could be there. He looks very comfortable on the penalty kill. He can transition the puck with the best of them. And he looks so comfortable in his own end too. And he's doing all this to pull a guy in Travis Hamannick, who I'm still not super sold on. I think he's been okay this year. This is Hamannick's best numbers since like peak Hamannick back in 2013. And Jake yeah. Sanderson is the leading factor of that. I just, I cannot say enough nice things about how well he has played this year. It's been, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on the expectations, myself included. I was expecting him to come in and be Kale McCarr. And I mean, he hasn't been offensively Kale McCarr, but defensively he's been pretty darn good. Uh, right. And the interesting thing that, because I, I agree with you in that, you know, Jake Sanderson's probably, carrying Travis Hamannick around uh, a lot in terms of those those stats interestingly though and I learned this because I wanted to look it up not because I'm smart uh so together which is the bulk of their minutes Sanderson and Hamannick have a, a tidy little 52 percent you know Corsi right Jake Sanderson without Travis Hamannick has an astounding 82 percent Corsi which is just bonkers but what's even more insane is that Hamannick without Sanderson has a 69 uh, Corsi 4, which, I mean, and again, those are in, in much smaller, you know, 10 minutes and 20 minutes of 515 time. So versus 82 minutes uh, together, right? But Hamannick's playing technically better without Sanderson is the thing that surprised me about that. But that being said, that, that pairing, you know, I, I, to start the season and even still now don't love the idea of Travis Hamannick playing that much. Uh, sorry. Don't love the idea of 2022 Travis Hamannick playing that much. I get to your point, 2014 Travis Hamannick signed me up. Uh, you know, I'm not, a, not a big fan of that, but they're doing well together. So don't touch it until they're not. It's kind of where my head's at with that. But yeah, Sanderson's Sanderson's been incredible, right? He's been, he's looked like a veteran. He's looked like a future all-star. He's looked like someone who, you know, can hopefully sooner rather than later for the sake of Thomas Shabbat, uh, start to take those minutes away from, away from Shabbat. So Shabbat can play 22, 23, 24, and not 27, 20, 29 minutes a game. Absolutely. I'd be willing to put a lot of money down that, 
80% of those 10 minutes that Hamannick played without Sanderson must have been with Shabbat. I don't know for that to be a fact, but I mean, we can check, but I you're probably saying, right. <laughs> that just seems like what I've seen. I mean, he has played with Branstrom as well, too, who's played unreal as well. And I'll get to him in a second. But yeah, I just kind of think like it's one of those things where, and this is purely eye test because Hamnick's numbers have been fine. So I'm okay letting them play together, as you said, because if you're getting a second pair, even if it's one guy dominating right now, but a second pair that's putting up 55% uh, possession numbers, I'm totally fine with that. As long as, you know, one, if that does slide to say 45 for 10, 15 games, you make the needed adjustment and not just go, eh, it was working earlier in the year. It's going to work yeah. now. Um, but yeah, like Hamannick, I just, when I watch him with my eye test, he just, I think he's, he's obviously better than Zaitsev in that I don't think Zaitsev should even be on an NHL roster. I think Hamannick on a very good team is a number seven defenseman on a just good team. Like I think this Ottawa Senators team is, I think you can easily get away with him being your number six defenseman. In terms of like, if he's playing penalty kill, like I don't think Hamnick's too bad on the penalty kill. I think he can clear the net. He doesn't get quite as lost in his own end as say Zaitsev does, which again, very low bar, but, um, but I just, Hamnick's puck moving skills aren't great. You know, he still does get caught in his own end at times. I I feel like sometimes he gets caught running around trying to lay that like booming hit or whatever in the corner. And I just kind of, I think just sometimes it's like, man, like I know that kind of feels what your role is, but just take a step back and focus on the transition that's going and stopping that instead. Because I will say like Hamnick is, he's exceeded my expectations this year. I, I will yeah. like, I didn't, I heading into the year. I'm not even sure he was like, I wouldn't have called him. I would have called him a fringe NHL defenseman. And like, he's looked better than that. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I just think a large part of that is into Jake Sanderson. And then you get to that third pair. The reason I'm still okay with keeping them together is because of how good the third pair has looked with no Nikita Zaitsev, Eric Branstrom and Nick Holden have been the perfect little duo for each other, especially for Eric Branstrom. This is, I've been an Eric Branstrom defender for three years now. <laughs> yeah. This is by far the best I have seen him play in a long, long time though. He just looked, he looks good in his own end. You know, he still gets out muscled in front of the net. That's just always going to happen with this size, but he's been really good at stopping transitions and zone, the zone entries throughout the end. I've noticed. And what's been more impressive to me is he just seems to have the confidence this year to move the puck with himself. You know, I, I felt like in years past, he was always supposed to be this offensive defenseman or whatever, and never really pan through. But this year you can tell that he's just helping this team in transition. He's moving the puck up himself. He's making insane moves at his own blue line to get evade pressure and then open up a a blue line to blue line pass and send them in on a three on two the other way. It's just anytime you watch this guy, it just looks so obvious. And then they go and throw Nikita Zaitsev as a partner with him the other night. And I'm totally fine giving Nick Holden uh, rest because Nick Holden is 35 years old, but it's just, and then as soon, as soon as Zaitsev comes back, you just see one of Branstrom's, he was fine, but it just, he it looked like one of his not as great games, you know? And so I just think, I think having a guy like Holden there who he doesn't really do anything special, but I think that's a good thing. You know, he just, he's, he's very steady. He, he can pass the puck if needed, but you know, he likes giving it to Branstrom because Branstrom's obviously the more talented of the two, but he, Holden's just very responsible in his own end. And you can tell Branstrom doesn't feel he needs to make up for any shortcomings of Holden. I think that's been so good for them. And I really hope this is a third line or a third pair that continues to play throughout the year. hundred percent. Right. And I think I would like to, Alex, I'd like to issue a challenge to your listeners here. I 
challenge you to at me on Twitter and explain to me why you may think outside of DJ Smith saying so in some media availability like two games or three games ago that Nick Holden has been anything but a good third pairing defenseman. I've seen some people be like, ah, he hasn't played that well. Ah, he's been pretty bad. You know, we got to get or It's okay to get Zaitsev in there because Holden's been, you know, underwhelming or bad or what it's, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, I don't get it. I like, if you, if you look at the stats, if you watch, so if you look at the stats, the, them together, Brandstrom and Holden have been for a third pair exceptional. Um, and then even if you look at the eye test, I don't really remember many Nick Holden games. And what, to what I said earlier on this recording, that's a good thing for a third pairing defenseman that I don't remember what Nick Holden did, because that means Nick Holden did throw a pizza up the middle of the ice uh, or get beat in front of the, in front of his net or whatever, or get, you know, lose puck battles in the corner. If I don't remember Nick Holden, that's a good thing. Right. Um, and so I, I issue that challenge. Someone explained to me why they think Nick Holden has been anything but exactly what you want from a third pairing defenseman. Right. Yeah. Has he been a Norris caliber defenseman? No. Was he ever going to be? Also, no. So let's all just cool it with the Holden should sit thing. If it's to rest him because he's, you know, 35, which as someone who's approaching that myself makes me sad to say, um, but, you know, my back hurts 90, 90% of the time anyway. So I get it. Um, you know, that's fine, whatever. Um, but Eric Branstrom's two worst games this season have been the two games he's been paired with Nick Zaitsev, and it hasn't been particularly close, right? And so if you're going to put Zaitsev in, it should be because there's an injury. And if Nick Holden's got a, an aching something going on and they're just giving him rest, awesome. Um, but the one thing that really kind of bothers me a little bit about it is uh, Smith's uh, explanation for why why the switch uh, yesterday for Zaitsev and, and Holden was in part because uh, Zaitsev, you know, injuries will happen. And so you want your players to play. And then he said, and this is a good opportunity for, for him to play. I don't know in what realm playing the Minnesota wild is a good opportunity for Nikita Zaitsev to draw into the lineup. A good opportunity for Nikita, as I said, to draw to the lineup would have been a couple games ago when they played Arizona. Yeah. Right? Um, because if he's not playing well, you can probably roll five defensemen and still beat Arizona. Right? But if he's not playing well, it's harder to roll five defensemen and beat Minnesota. Right? So for me, that that was just a little bit of a, a discrepancy in logic in my head. But again, if Holden's nursing like a, an injury even if it's a small one, they're just like, let's just get Zaitsev in here. Like, fine, whatever. It's it's one game. They lost. I don't think they lost because Nikita Zaitsev was in the lineup, right? I, I don't think that he played so poorly that he cost them the game. It's just I don't understand the logic of going from a pairing that produces above 50%, you know, chances for and against uh, in Holden and Branstrom to one that produces... 33% in, yep. in Branstrom and Zaitsev. Like it's just, it, it's such a far drop. Uh, if if Branstrom and Holden weren't performing well, go for it. Toss Zaitsev in, let's see what happens. But they're playing well. So I don't, I, I didn't really, I still don't get it. But um, my, you know, to the the topic of, of our wonderful Artem Zub being injured, all I hope is that it doesn't result in a Shabbat side set first pair. That's what I was just about to say. Is, <laughs> yeah, even when injuries happen, well, an injury happened, and it better not mean Zaitsev's back in this lineup normally. It better mean one of JBD or Lassie Thompson comes up. 
And I don't understand why they're not anyways. If they're on a California road trip and the injury happens, sure, I get it. Zaitsev's the only guy you got there. You got to put him in. That's fine. Not ideal, but fine. Yeah. But they're in Ottawa. If yeah. you need a guy, if you know that, you know, if unless it's a game time decision, which it did not sound like this was, if you know that you're planning to give Nick Holden the Thursday net off because you think he needs some rest, again, totally fine with that. The reason you moved your AHL team to Belleville was so <laughs> that you could get a Lassie Thompson or a Jacob Bernard Docker up when needed. And I don't know where Belleville was playing last night, if they're on a road trip or not, but I am sure if you knew over, they had over 24 hours in advance to plan that they have the roster spot open. They have the cap space to bring a guy like that up, especially with Josh Norris now on the uh, LTIR. Yeah. Like they have, they only have 22 contracts in the NHL right now. And one of those is actually not a contract. I don't believe it's actually, no, sorry. Maybe Foreman doesn't count towards that. Um, But yeah, sorry. He doesn't. Um, but still, like they still have an extra body they could bring up. So call a Lassie Thompson up, call a JBD up, even if it's for one game, you send them back down. I get it. You don't want to be jumbling them around too much, but the focus needs to be about winning now. The focus is no longer, hey, can we develop these prospects so they might be a second or third pair guy two or three years down the road? If JBD is your best option for a one night game against the Minnesota Wild, bring up JBD and put him in the lineup. Like I just, Zaitsev does not need to play. And I think the sooner they get that through their heads, the better for this team, because it just like, I, it's better. I'm, I'm glad I was already wrong. I was not convinced Zaitsev was ever coming out of the lineup this year, unless they <laughs> waived him. So I'm glad that he has been healthy scratch, but they need to take it a step farther now as well. And, and I really hope they do that. And, you know, I think that leads into a good question. One of the uh, uh, questions we got was from Al or Alan. He said, uh, do you guys still think the senators need to acquire a defenseman? Not a fan of Hamannick, but the on-ice results for the whole group have been good so far, as we are talking about. Uh, he then says, additionally, would you be open to the Sens acquiring a defenseman if it means they can't extend Zub? I'd rather have Zub than someone like Chitrin. So, obviously, a bit of a multifaceted question. Let's start with the first one. Do you guys still think the Senators need to acquire a defenseman? A, I don't think the Zub injury affects this answer, in my opinion, because it's only one or two weeks. I think then I really hope that... Um, I think the best course of action would either put Branstrom up to the top pair with Shabbat. I thought they looked good or like when they played together last year or call up JBD or Lassie Thompson, take your pick, which two, I don't really care. And put one of those up with Shabbat. Shabbat has shown he can control, you can play with a partner and that would be a good reason to dock his minutes a little bit and let Sanderson play a little more as well. Um, that's my opinion anyways on that. I don't know if you have anything wildly different, but I don't think the Zub injury affects needing to, to make a trade. No, no, I definitely don't think the Zub injury affects a, or a, requires a trade, right? I think that you know, one or two weeks, whatever, it'll be fine. I still think that the, you know, I think the, the answer to this question is always yes, right? Like, do they need to acquire another good defenseman? Yeah, every team probably does, right? Um, that being said, sorry, I shouldn't say do they need. Should they want to? Do they need to? Maybe not. Right, maybe not as much, or at least maybe not as much as they, I thought they did before the season started, right? Because Sanderson Hamannick has worked out so far. Shabbat Zub has been great. Uh, Branstrom has become a player that we always hoped he would be, which is awesome, right? The only thing is that acquiring another defenseman 
if it pushes Zaitsev, and again, I, I hate to, it's been so many years we've been beating this dead horse, right? I, it, I feel, I feel for the person. It's nothing um, personal against it's him. Nothing he's just personal. not good at hockey. It's, he's just, he, yeah, exactly. So he, if it pushes him further down the, the depth chart, then yeah, let's, yes, absolutely. Um, but that being said, do I think they need to require, acquire another defenseman? Probably not. And do they need, and should they require another defenseman where that need, where that means that they can't, literally can't uh, extend Artem Zub? No. Right. Uh, I think that what Zub, uh, sorry, no, unless they acquire Kale Quinn Connor. Hughes or something. Like right. That. <laughs> yeah, like, like, unless they, unless they acquire some superstar stud yeah. then no. Right. But like what Zub brings to the lineup is so important. Partially because he doesn't provide offense, but he's so good defensively and still good in the transition. And still, like he still moves the puck really well. He does all the things. He reminds me a lot of how people spoke about like uh, Slavin when he when he first kind of came onto the scene, right? Like he wasn't going to score a bunch of points, but he was just going to be such a steady Eddie that you need that player in your top pair or in your top four. And Zub is that. Um, so unless again they can acquire a defenseman who's better. Than Zub specifically at that, because I don't think that Chikrin is necessarily a better defensive defenseman than Zub. Will he put up more points than Zub? Probably not. Probably certainly uh, Chikrin would. But they have Shabbat. They have Sanderson. They don't really need Chikrin. And this is coming from someone who this summer was pretty on board with the acquire Chikrin train. Um, if it means that Zub can't be extended, then I'm no. Again unless they acquire some superstar. Yeah, that's kind of the thing is, A, with Chitron, I worry if he can even play the right side. Like, he's played the left is basically is. I know he's called a left and right, but yeah. by anyone who's watched him in Arizona, and, and again, I have not, I'm not going to proclaim to watch any Arizona games, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. But people have said who cover that team have said that he has been basically strictly a left-handed, uh, a left-side defenseman. Now, I don't know if that means he can't play the right side or not, but I think there should be some valid concern there. I think the first part of the question is, it depends what the team's goal is for this season. If their goal is to just be playing meaningful hockey into March and, you know, around that playoff bubble, you know, maybe, you know, like they're, they're right there, they miss by six points or whatever. I don't think they need to, to make a trade. No. If they want to legitimately push for a playoff spot and be more than just like a little bit of an underdog to try and sneak into at the one point or whatever, like if they, if they want to make a wild card by four or five points or whatever, I do think come trade deadline time, it would yeah. be a good idea to make a trade. I don't think they need to make one right now. I don't think anyone's available right now. I think it's something that come trade deadline time, as you said, it would be, even if it's just a number six defenseman or whatever, it would be good to have him as insurance to do like what the, the uh, Leafs trade for Ilya Labushkin last year, having yeah. a guy like that on your third pair, or even if he's your seventh defenseman for a little while, so that if you do legitimately want to make, want to make a playoff run and let's say Zub goes down for a week or two in your playoff run, you don't have Nikita Zaitsev as your number one option stepping up on that top role. So I, I think if they want to be, a team that's favored to make playoffs. I do think a trade would still be necessary at some point this year. Um, yeah. If they're happy and you know, if they are happy with it, I think it's a reasonable season to say if they got 80 or 91 points and missed the playoffs by four or five points or whatever, I think most people would consider that a very successful season. If you gave that to them heading into the year. Right. So um, yeah. I don't think they would need to make the trade. And then again, I, I'm kind of with you. If, 
if they can't extend Zub, by unless it's a superstar defenseman, I wouldn't want to. But I do kind of also question how many trades would prevent them from signing Zub or re-signing Zub, I should say. Like, if you trade for Dylan DeMello is the guy I keep bringing up, you know. Yeah. And I get it. It's not just to beat a dead horse that, you know, they trade away in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think if you can get DeMello for a third or a fourth or whatever, he's got two years left on his $3.5 million deal. Again, yeah. he'd be the perfect partner for Shabbat. But I don't think sign or trading for DeMello means you couldn't re-sign Zub because I think you could re-sign him, have Zub be Sanderson's long-term partner or Shabbat, and then put DeMello with Sanderson. And then you have Branstrom and whoever you want, whether that's Thompson, JBD, or Holden on that uh, that third pair. And then I think you just let Travis Hamannick walk after this year. Um, so I, I do think, you know, like I don't know how many defensemen you'd be trading for that would break the bank so aggressively you also can't sign Artem Zub because, you know, then the, the other half of that is if Zub's asking for a six by six or something like that, I think you'd be, I would be hesitant to just lock him up to that right away. You know, like I, I love Zub, but it's one of those things where just off the top of my head, I'd have to look into it more if I'd be comfortable with a number, you know, that high. If they give him, I kind of see in the Nikita Zaitsev range of what he's, I think Zub was better than Nikita Zaitsev. So maybe you want to say it's a five by five or something like that. Five by five and a half. I could see something in that range. Um, But you know, that's the other thing is where it's like, I don't know how many contracts you could sign that it's like, well, we can't afford our Tim Zub now unless the internal budget is more than what we think it is. But I don't, that doesn't seem to be a problem right now. So I'm going to just hope that it's not and not think that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that the, the team has shown that they're, maybe they're not, you know, spending to the cap cap, but their internal budget certainly increased. And I would assume that the attendance and everything that's going to be much better this year than in previous years will help with that fact. Um, yeah. And I'm with you. There, there aren't many, aren't many defensemen that you would trade for that would impact that realistically the, the, the person who, whose next contract will impact whether or not they can afford to, signs who already exists on the team and his name's Alex Debrinkat. So um, depending on what that number is, is going to be the reason I think they can or can't meet Zub at a, a dollar figure that he, he wants. But I think the interesting thing for Zub that we'll want to watch, or at least not want to watch, but we will get to watch is because he's so good defensively, he'll probably make bank on the open market. Right, like there's probably going to be a team that's gonna that is going to give him a, de- a deal that starts with a six, whereas I don't know that Ottawa should or would give him a deal that starts with a six based on all of his stats and everything. So um, it'll all depend on what what he wants to do, right? Does he want to go for that? Because realistically, he's what 20, 27. 27 next year, yeah. So if he signs a five six year deal, like for a lot of NHL players, that that's his last deal. Yeah. Right, and so he's going to want to maximize that, and so you know financially he probably would be smart to go to the open market uh so we'll yeah we'll we'll see how that goes yeah yeah and the open market's always so weird with defensive defense it's so weird sometimes they don't get paid at all like a dylan DeMello type doesn't get paid at all like i thought three point yeah. i think it's 3.5 over four years just absolute steal for him and then sometimes you get the tucker pullman gets nine million dollars it's like what are we doing here like it just it doesn't make sense so uh yeah anyways well, like, i think wrist a line and just made bank exactly and he's terrible, like so. that dude hasn't been good at all in his nhl career um but anyways 
I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We got uh, the Sens are going on the Florida road trip. They got uh, Tampa and Florida coming up. Those are two what I call the measuring stick games early in the season. I think this will be a really good test, obviously with a bit of a beaten up Sens team as well, um, but a, a really good test that even, you know, it's going to be hard to get points, but even if, as long as you're in the games and you're competitive against it, I, I think that would be an improvement over next year. But I, it's it's a weird adjustment because I think it is getting to the point now where, I want to see the Sens not only be competitive with them, but they, I do, I hope they take two out of four points on this road trip. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. which is just not, not something I would have said in years past. No, I wouldn't have expected it in years past. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, it, it's October, so it feels weird to say this, but this weekend feel this weekend, I guess this week, well, Saturday, Tuesday, or whatever the next two games are in Florida. Um, they're kind of must win. Like they're not, they're not must win, but they're kind of must win only because they're both Atlantic division teams. Right. We talked earlier uh, on the, on the episode here that, you know, the Atlantic is so tight that we're going to start to see separation. And if Ottawa loses to both Florida and Tampa, the separation that we're going to start to see in the standings is not the one that we want. Right. We, we want, because if, if Ottawa can beat Tampa, if Ottawa can beat Florida, all of a sudden there's four more points for them. Tampa's then below 500, which is weird for Tampa. Uh, and Florida's got another you know check in the loss column. Um, so, yeah, I think it's not necessarily must-win hockey, but it would be really important to, to take home at least two points. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you could get all four points, you're just banking well, that, that early yeah. strangle. And, like, that's... I think that's an unrealistic expectation for genuinely totally any is. team going through the Florida trip, but hundred percent of this. Yeah. But yeah, like if you could get four points, you're just getting an early stranglehold over, you know, like just early in the season. And it's the common phrase. You can't make playoffs in October, but you can definitely miss it. If you can mm-hmm. put a couple teams under that wire where it's like, Ooh, the senators, they're seven and three right now or six and three. They look pretty legit versus yeah. oh, the senators are four and five or four, four and one or whatever. They look fine, but they don't look anything special. You know, like it, it's weird. It's only a couple game difference, but it's very important. So it'll be interesting because they got those two. Then they have the Golden Knights at home. That'll be a tough game. Then yeah. their schedule should get a little easier. They play the Flyers, who off to a good start, not sold their good team. The Canucks off to a horrid start. The Devils <laughs> can't get a save. Good team, but you don't know, just, like, I don't think they're much better than the Senators. Uh, the Flyers again, the Islanders who aren't great, the Sabres who are fine, the Devils again, the Sharks. Like you have some winnable games after you get through the next three. So I think it'll just be about surviving that. Um, Spencer, thank you so much for joining me today. Plug some stuff. Where can people find you and anything you do? Yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter at Spencer DJ Blake. Uh, and I cover Belleville for the Silver 7 Cents. So that's where you can find any of my writing. I do weekly recaps of their games, usually on Wednesdays. Uh, and then I also do some some Ottawa coverage as well uh, on recaps and live tweeting and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure you go, guys go check that out. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I'll be back at you in the next week or two. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at NHL Send and stuff uh, and all my hot work at lastwordonhockey.com. Uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.